as we look around uh, just our world today, the question I would ask is, would you like to see more love in our world today? Uh, perhaps maybe a little bit more joy or peace. That'd be a good one. Patience, maybe some kindness in our world. That would be fantastic. Uh, some goodness, maybe more faithfulness, a little more gentleness or self-control. Like any of y'all are like, I would love a little more of that. Yes? I am waiting because Edgewood's joining us as too. So like, if you would like to see any of those things or more of that in your life or around your life, then the next 13 weeks is for you. Uh, the reality is, is that as we think about what this next series we're going to approach means, it is literally to permeate more of those things. Paul calls those things the fruit of the Spirit. The things that God uh, allows us to possess as his followers. And it's us and our job as disciples to permeate that throughout our culture. And if you would desire to see more of those things, then I encourage you to track along with us over the course of this journey. Uh, it's going to be a unique journey. Uh, it's going to be, I think, a very fun journey. I think we're going to kick it off here in a few moments today with a macro view of what you might think is a disciple. You might think a disciple is one of the 12, the apostles. That's typically what you think of. But let me just explain to you real quickly what a disciple is. This is what a disciple is. We'll put it for you up on the screen. Uh, one, it's a noun. So it's a person, place, or a thing. In this particular case, it's a person. And it's simply a person who believes the ideas or the principles about someone and then tries to live the way that person does or did. It's an apprentice. The word of the Greek is mathetes, which means apprenticeship or student or learner. And that's exactly what a disciple is. And as we embark on this journey of a new series, Disciple, it's going to be learning from those who followed Jesus. And today we're going to start with a macro view, but then we're going to begin to move in with a microscope to those who follow Jesus closely. And I think there's much for us to learn. Uh, but as you're uh, beginning just the process with me, I encourage you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, Matthew is one of the Gospels. Uh, it's the first of what we know in the New Testament. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the good news of Jesus. So in Matthew, we're going to begin in chapter 4. Now, as you're turning there, I want to welcome those that are joining us online. I mean, certainly as we start the new year, there's many people that are watching at home because they're kind of under been traveling and they're just kind of getting settled. And so we want to welcome you. Uh, we also want to welcome our Edgewood campus. We're so glad that our Edgewood campus is joining us live in this moment. And uh, we look forward to embarking on this journey together, whether you're at home or whether you're at one of our campuses. And so we would say, hey, welcome. And if you're a first time guest, hey, what a great time to join us. Uh, and pray that today is an encouragement to you. And just, I pray also just in some ways that it helps you to determine whether or not this is a place that maybe you and your family or you and your spouse can belong. And if you're single, we hope it's a place that you can belong. But in Matthew chapter four, what you're gonna see is an encounter that Jesus has with a group of men. The encounter shares with us four men, in fact, that Jesus is gonna have an encounter with. And in Matthew chapter four, beginning in verse 18, it says this, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he... Saw two brothers. The he in this narrative is Jesus. So Jesus saw two brothers. Simon, who is called Peter. Anybody ever heard about Peter? Yes? Are y'all with me? Okay, we're going to have to do a lot better than this. If we're starting 2024, it's going to be rough if we're starting this way. 
He saw Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Now, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, they were mending their nets, and he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So Jesus calls these four men. We see Simon and Andrew. We see James and John. Uh, three of those fours are, are, are going to be names that we recognize in some ways more than we do Nathaniel, uh, who was also called Bartholomew, or perhaps you know, some of the other ones. The other Simon sometimes gets lost. And so, but as we, we look at really who Jesus is calling, what I want you to note is, is that these men were called to follow in an apprenticeship journey. They literally are students. But what's interesting about this is that you might not know this, but this journey is a very progressive journey. It, this is not even the beginning of the journey. This is not the first time that it seems that Jesus has had an encounter with these men. Actually, I'm not going to put it for you up on the screen, but you can go check me on this. But in John chapter 1, John, who also writes as a part of the Gospels, though he is not similar to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he does his own thing in a sense. He tells us in John chapter 1 that the first encounter that Jesus had with Andrew and Peter was actually when John the Baptist was preparing the way for the Lord. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist made a distinction about Jesus. And he said this in John chapter 1, verse 35. He said, look, behold, he says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's actually going to say it twice in this same grouping or same encounter. And as he's doing that, what's interesting to note is this, is that as he's making this distinction about who Jesus is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Andrew, he hears it. And as he hears this, Andrew then goes, hey, Rabbi, like, hey, tell me more. And he begins to desire to follow him. He actually leaves Jesus and he goes and he tells his brother, Simon, who is going to be called Peter. And he says, hey, listen, I have found the Messiah. That seems to be kind of the, the interworkings of this first relationship. Jesus has certainly uh, been traveling around this local area. He's familiar with Galilee. He's familiar with the Sea of Galilee and all the communities that are sitting on the edge of what Luke calls a lake. Uh, and as Jesus tra travels around as, as kind of an itinerant, no place to lay his head, he begins to call people. And some of those that he calls are Andrew and Peter and James and John. But listen, I want you to understand that though he selects these four men and says, hey, I want you to leave, I want you to leave your boats and your fishing nets and come and be fishers of men. I want you to know that this is the beginning of a relationship. It's the beginning of a student relationship, an apprenticeship that begins. And what's going to happen is, is they're going to leave not only their boats and vocations and their homes, and they're going to go from place to place to place in some ways, gathering their meals as they go, as they grab sheaves of grain and as they eat fish from the lake, they're certainly an eclectic group of people. And it's not, I don't believe, just a handful of men. It's many followers. We know through the gospel accounts that Jesus is gathering a crowd. We know that he feeds the multitudes, right? 4,000 and 5,000 people. We know that more and more people are interested in Jesus and his ministry. 
We also know that as Jesus is calling some people to follow him and they are apprenticeships or learners or students, that there are many of them. I mean, we don't know exactly how many. We know that it's more than a dozen. We know that it's more than two dozen. Uh, there's at one point that Jesus is going to send out not only the 12, but he's also going to send out 70 other followers two by two. So there's a good group of people who are following him. And what's interesting is that Jesus is making a distinction, though, at some point in his ministry, at some point in this, as to the difference between those who would be not just apprentices, but those who would become preachers. And I want you to understand that the discipleship journey, as you would see a disciple, starts with a learning relationship. And listen, the classroom was not in a lab. The classroom was not in a synagogue. It wasn't in a local temple. It wasn't even the temple courts. It was as they traveled from place to place, as Jesus interacted with people, the sick, the lepers, the lowly, the despised, the people of faith, these men were watching on and they were learning. And which is this, these men, it was other people. Certainly it was women who had been called out of prostitution. It was certainly women that had been called out of a lifestyle that, of confusion. There were men and women, an eclectic group of people following him. Do y'all understand this picture? And as you see this picture, Jesus is inaugurating a new ministry. And as he does so, listen, I want you to know there's already tension in the air. There's tension in the air because what Jesus is inaugurating certainly looks different than what Jewish leaders would have in their day. Uh, there's already tension in the air between him and the, the Pharisees of the Sadducees, the people of the law and the people of the known religion of the day. There's already tension as Jesus is gathering a multitude. There's already fear within the culture and leaders because they know that there's a man from Galilee who claims to be the son of God. And there are people who are leaving their homes, their vocations and their lives to follow what many believe to be a lunatic. And if you can feel that tension, I want you to see that it just begins to grow even more. And the reason why is because as Jesus has these students who claim that he is their master, he realizes there's a time that not only are they students of the parables in which they have a difficult time recognizing or understanding, but they are to be preachers. And not only are they to be preachers, they're to be world changers. They are to flip the entire script upside down. They are to take what is known in Israel and they are to give something entirely, completely, radically different than what is known. When I say flip the script, I mean it is counterintuitive, countercultural. It is upsetting. It is frustrating to many of the elite, particularly the educated, particularly those who believe that Jesus is a lunatic. And you may not think, well, many people believe his, that he was a lunatic. But listen, I want you to know that the gospel accounts tell us that he was. Now, when you see the initial call of these men, um, I just want you to note that it's in every gospel. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John writes a little different about it, but you see glimpses of it. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see it clearly. But I want you to see the next phase. I want you to see how Jesus takes these particular men, 12 of them, in fact, and he calls them from apprenticeship to preaching. And that's going to happen in Mark chapter three. 
If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you're kind of new to your Bible, maybe you found Matthew. Listen, you're going to go one book over. So it's Matthew, then Mark. So you're just going to flip to your right. When you find a big numeral three, that's Mark, that's chapter three. And then you're going to find the little numeral 13. Now, what's interesting to note is I'm going to share with you an account from Mark because I want you to see from a different perspective. But listen, I could have also kept you in Matthew because Matthew tells of this same account in Matthew chapter 10. Not only does Matthew tell you about it, but Luke also tells you about it in chapter six. Now in Mark chapter three, this is what it says, beginning in verse 13. It says, and he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. Now, what he's doing here is he's making a distinction. These men are disciples. They're students. They're apprentices. They have a master in whom they follow. They are learning from him. They are asking questions along the way. They are learning in the lab of ministry as Jesus goes from place to place. But it's important for Jesus to make a distinction that these men are going to be his ambassadors. And when you see the word apostles there, that's literally what it means, an ambassador. They are not just followers, but they are in some ways being set apart, distinct as spokesmen of Jesus. They are going to lead in many ways the ministry and Jesus is going to prepare them. And it's interesting to note that he's going to appoint the 12. And you might ask the question, well, why does he Appoint 12. And it's a very good question. I know some of you are Aggies in the room. You're like, he must have been an Aggie. You got to have 12, right? Uh, I'm here to tell you that's not the reason, but we will try to answer that here in a bit. As he appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to, say it with me, preach. Okay, that's terrible. Let's go, let's try it again. He sent them out that they might preach. preach that they might preach, that they're going to share the good news. What is the good news? It's called the gospel. And he, he is sending them out to preach. And interesting note, verse 15, he gives them authority to cast out demons. And then it says, here's who he appointed. And it shows you 12. Now, what's interesting to note is if you look at verse 13, it says that he went up on the mountain and he called those whom he desires. Now, Luke's account tells you that before he selected the 12, he spent all night praying. Luke says that Jesus went and he withdrew with his father and he prayed throughout the entire night. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't find myself praying throughout the entire night. And I would say that there's probably been a lot of major decisions in my life that I've not prayed over very carefully at all. But here you see the testimony of Luke and and. Mark doesn't include it as much as Luke does, uh, which Luke is just a, a greater historian, I think. Uh, but what he does is he goes, listen, Jesus, he was at one with his father and with the Holy Spirit as he communed with them in prayer throughout the night. Now, Jesus was certainly the God-man, but in his humanity, he subjects himself through a night of prayer to his father's leadership, to the Spirit's counsel in his life. Why? Because this decision is monumental. He's taking all of these people who've been following him in an apprenticeship journey, and he is now saying, I've got to determine 12 that can rule and reign and lead and preach and take great martyrdom and be willing to have fire in their face 
be willing to be burned and not bow down. And that was this spectacular group of people in which he says in verse 16, he'll appoint 12. They are Simon to whom he gave the name Peter. And you'll always see that Peter is listed first. Matter of fact, Peter is a nickname that Jesus gave him, which is called Rock. Uh, interesting enough, we're going to talk about Peter next week. So if you're interested in him, or maybe you identify with a guy who always put his foot in his mouth, then next week might be for you. And if you're like, I don't feel like I do that, then it's probably really for you next week. <laughs> but he doesn't just appoint Simon, who they called Peter. He said in verse 17, it was James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonergis. Uh, that's the fiery thunder. The sons of thunder, they were heated at times. He said, there's Andrew and there's Philip and there's Bartholomew. Um, in a different account, he's called Nathaniel. There's Matthew, there's Thomas, there's James, there's, there's Alf, uh, the son of Alphaeus, there's Thaddeus, there's Simon the Zealot, and then there's Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. A very eclectic group. We know for sure four of them were fishermen. We've seen that. Uh, we know one's a... An anti, you know, really anti, anarchist. Uh, he is um, a religious zealot. He wants to overthrow the government for the sake of, of the Jewish nation. Um, he is going to meet his match in a guy who has conspired with the Roman uh, people to tax his own people. That's Matthew, the tax collector. We also know a guy who's going to be in charge of the money, and he's a fraud, a thief, and he's also a traitor. Pretty eclectic group, actually. And what's interesting is, is that it says in verse 20, then he went home after he'd called these men, made them apostles, given them a distinction, and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, all of this, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his, what? Mind. So here's the picture. The picture is there's a bunch of people been following Jesus there's tension in the air, and the tension is not just with the religious elite. The tension is also with his family. It's as if his mama says, hey, <laughs> James, go get your brother. Like he, I don't know what all this is, but like, go, go get your brother. It's James looking around and going, <laughs> this dude's crazy. And James, we know from the scriptures, clearly did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah until after the resurrection. And we get a great picture of that in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus was one of the ones who appeared personally to his half-brother, James. So we see here that James is not a follower. He is not one of the apprentices. He is not a student in this time. He is a naysayer. He is a skeptic. And so when you think about this idea of a lunatic, Jesus was seen as a lunatic, and here it is, he's calling men. Now you might ask, well, why is he calling these men? Well, I want you to understand, and this is the important part of the message. He was calling men who looked drastically different than anything else in Israel. So just so you understand, when Jesus called these disciples, these students, these learners to follow a master, he was very wise in his choosing. They were common, ordinary men. Oh, when I say common and ordinary, uh, eclectic, fisherman, tax collector, we've already spoken about those things, zealot, trader. They had no political stature whatsoever. They were not famed. They were not known. There was not a single one of them 
They had a banner out in their community in the area of Galilee that said, I'm going to run for council. They weren't going to be your next mayor. Likely they didn't know how to read or write. Most of them probably wouldn't have graduated high school. And most likely they're such a ragtag bunch, they probably couldn't accomplish their GED. When you look at them, these are not a group of men that you and I would probably pick. They had no economic stature. They had nothing to bring to the table. They, they weren't brought to the table because they had great financing for a campaign. There was nothing that brought them to the table. Not a single one of them had a line to Pharisees or to Sadducees. They weren't scribes. They weren't part of a religious sect. They didn't know anything that you and I would think we needed a new pastor to know. They weren't preachers at this time. We have, no, we have no information that they were religious whatsoever. What we do know about them is they weren't prominent in society. They weren't religious. They had little education. They were a ragtag, eclectic bunch of nobodies. And in some ways you may go, well, Why? Why would God take this Galilean group of guys, this low-class citizenship people, and call them to be his disciples? Students, apprentices, preachers, and world changers. Well, it's because God has a way of taking ordinary people and doing something extraordinary. Matter of fact, that's what Paul would write to the church of Corinth. He, he Paul, who you could make a debate about whether he was an apostle or whether he replaced Judas, which we'll talk about that in future weeks. You could say, well, maybe he was one of the apostles. Well, we do know he was instrumental to the life of the church. And he writes and he tells the church of Corinth exactly who it is that God selects when he's choosing people. This is what he says. In his first letter to the church of Corinth, almost in the opening statements, and the first, certainly makes the first page of, of the papyrus, says it's unscrolled. It says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then he goes on, he says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Essentially, what Paul is writing to the church of Corinth is, you are nothing and you were nothing. You were foolish, you were weak, you were despised. And the only reason you are something today is because of Christ. And the only reason you have any righteousness at all, any right standing with God, any merit before the supreme God of the universe is because of his son, Jesus. And it is him who brought peace through the blood of the cross. And it is him who allows you to boast, not in yourself, not in your accolades, not in your education, not in your intellectual capacities, not in your political fervor, not in your religious zealousy. You only boast in the fact that you are nothing and God is everything. And he goes, and that's all you have. And that is exactly who Jesus chose. And here's why. You ready? Here it is. 
He chose this ragtag bunch because it was an all-out assault on the leadership of Israel in their day. Israel was led by men who were Pharisees and Sadducees. They knew the Torah, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, forward and backward. They knew the law. They kept the law the best they could. They never would kill a man, but they might hire someone who could. They wouldn't work on the Sabbath today if you found a good Jew but they would love to go on the elevator as long as you'll push the button. Jesus recognized the discrepancies in this day between the law and the leadership, and he knew that Israel was dark and that a new light needed to dawn. And that new light dawned in the midst of 400 years of darkness, a people who were broken and despised and in many ways rejected, who had been oppressed for centuries. And on a starry night in Bethlehem, a new light dawned. And when that light dawned, his entire mission was to seek and to save that which is lost. And it was also to replace a worldly kingdom with one that was eternal. And in his mission to make an eternal kingdom, he knew that nothing in the earthly kingdom in Israel that day, or for Rome that matter, resembled the type of kingdom that Jesus needed to establish. So he didn't care what the religious leaders knew. He didn't know, he didn't care what they thought. He didn't care about their education or their background. Matter of fact, Jesus said this about the leaders in that day. He says, they are like whitewashed tombs. He says, they look good on the outside, but on the inside, they are full of dead men's bones. He actually says this in Matthew chapter 23. He says, they tie up cumbersome loads. And they make their followers do things that they will not do themselves. See, what you had is you had leaders who looked the part, who wanted to be esteemed, who wanted to be valued, who wanted to be held in high regard. And in order to do that, they had to keep people at a very low place. It's the very reason the reformers wanted to take the word of God back to the people. It's the religious lead in that day, they wanted to keep it all to themselves. It's the very reason that William Tyndale translated the Latin Vulgate so that English people could read it. What was happening in Jesus' day, Jesus despised and he rejected. And he basically said to the religious leaders without telling them directly that your leadership is no good and I'm gonna change the world and I'm not gonna do it because of what you know. I'm not gonna do it because of where you've been. I'm not going to do it because of what you've done. I'm going to do it because of the opposite. And I think Jesus' mission was this, and it's good news to you and I today, that no matter where you've been, and no matter what you've done, and no matter what you know, and no matter what's been done to you, there's a God in heaven who loves you, who desires a relationship with you, and moreover, can use you. And I think he's calling all of us to be disciples. And if he didn't call the 12 because he was an Aggie, why did he call the 12? Well, in Luke chapter 19, an interesting story is nestled in there about a rich young ruler. You might remember him. We don't have time to read it. You can go check it for yourself. You can check me up on it. Uh, In Luke chapter 19, there's a rich young ruler who said, I've done everything to keep the law. Is there anything else I must do? And Jesus says, yeah, leave everything behind. Come follow me. 
If you remember the response, the guy walks away, and Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. After Jesus says that, you get to see the ragtag group and their response and their lack of understanding because they go, okay, whoa, whoa, wait a second. If he can't get into the kingdom, then how do we get in the kingdom? And then Jesus tells them, well, I have a special role for those who love me and follow me. And he goes, and I have a special role for you. And, and listen, how many tribes were there in Israel? Twelve. How was Israel led? Poorly. Jesus tells them at the end of Luke chapter 19 that you guys are going to rule in the future kingdom. And you guys are going to sit at my right hand and my left hand. And what's interesting is he goes, and you will be a part of what's to come. In Revelation chapter 21, you see the foundations of the kingdom. You've got 12 gates, three on every side, four sides. And at the foundation of those gates, the apostles' names are etched in precious stone. Why? Because they have an incredible, incredible benefit to the future kingdom. Now, what's interesting, though, about that is while there's 12 and we should respect them, I think there's two common assumptions that we make. One is that we are to venerate and revere them in such a way that we put them in stained glass. And I don't think that that's the goal. Matter of fact, if I thought that was the goal, then I don't think there would be so many accounts in the Bible of how poorly they did. Matter of fact, I also, if I was talking to a skeptic, someone who didn't believe in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and their writing, or in some ways were a little bit skeptical about whether or not those things could be true, I would just ask the question, well, if we're not to venerate them and you wonder if it's true, then why in the world would the gospel accounts include so many of their mess-ups? Like, I don't know about you, but there's not many people in the Bible. Matter of fact, I can't reckon of any other one than, than one who Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. That was Peter, the rock, the one listed at the very beginning. The disciple always put his foot in his mouth. I mean, think about the disciples, this ragtag bunch. Not only were they eclectic, but they really messed up a lot. And they bickered about who was going to be the right and the left hand of, of Jesus in the kingdom. Hey, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to rule with him? I mean, you think about this. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he was taken and Peter chopped off the ear of a soldier, which by the way, Jesus wasn't excited about. It was just that moment or earlier before that Jesus was saying, hey guys, can't you stay awake for just one hour? I'm not asking you to make it in the night. Can you not just stay together? Like, can we not just pray for one hour? Jesus crucified. What did they do? They ran. Peter denied Christ how many times? Three before the rooster crowed. Said it wouldn't be. I will not. He did it anyway. He's the classic example of what Paul describes, I think, in Romans 7. I know the things I ought to do, and I find myself not doing them. And the very things I ought not to do, I find myself doing. You see the brokenness here? Which is why I think you've got to be careful not to venerate them. But at the same time, if you're not going to venerate them, I think you also have to be careful in this fact that you recognize that what God is calling you to is not less than what he was calling them to. Let me say that one more time. What God is calling you and I to is not less than what he was calling them to. See, if their discipleship journey was an apprenticeship 
and they became preachers and world changers, I can't see in the scriptures how that's any different for us. Matter of fact, as I read the, the manuscripts of the early church, and which I try to do often, daily, what I see is a call to be ordinary so that God can be extraordinary. What I see is a call to be an apprentice, a student, a learner of God's word so that it in some way shapes our lives so that we too proclaim and herald the good news to others. And I think we often have to stop believing that nothing good could come from Nazareth. Nothing good could come from Will's Point. Nothing good could come from Edgewood. Hey, nothing good could come from Myrtle Springs. Hey, nothing good could come from Elmo. Hey, nothing good could come from Quinlan. Stop believing the lies of the father of lies, John 8, 44, the one who wants to deceive, who wants to destroy, who wants to kill, who wants to mock, who wants to distort the truth of God, even in our own minds, even about who we are as his image bears. And we are to be students and learners and preachers and teachers, and we are to be world changers. And you go, well, I agree with that. Listen, I want you to understand, this isn't just a New Testament thing. Y'all realize this isn't just a New Testament thing? Let's just do a quick throwback. I'll just do a real quick. And I'm not going to go through the whole Old Testament, but let's, let's just start real quickly. Um, well, you got, you got Noah. God uses to save the world from incredible judgment. You would think that's the prime part of his life. He sees God in his kindness save him and his family. What does Noah do after the flood? makes a fool of himself, drunk in his tent, exposed before his sons, brings judgment even upon some of his family. Uh, you get a little further in the, the book of Genesis and you quickly read, especially if you're doing the chronological Bible with us, that you come across a guy named Abram, called out of the land of Ur, the Chaldeans, to be God's person. Yeah, you're going to make a, a, a name for yourself and more than that, a nation. And through all the world, the nations are going to be blessed because of you. And you're going to be the father of so many. It's going to be more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm not going to just bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. But I'm going to curse those who curse you. And by the way, I'll curse you if you don't do what I tell you to. And he was a liar. He deceived. At one point told uh, others in command that, that Sarah was his sister, not his wife. Put her in a place where she was exposed. Certainly... Um, was promised, the child of the promise, but in his own foresight and limited knowledge, he decided, you know what? God's waiting too long to give my barren wife Sarah something for the promise. If, if she can't have a child, then maybe we'd think it's a good idea at the advice of his wife to go something different. So they decided, well, why don't you just go and lay with our maidservant? He does. He brings about a son named Ishmael. Ishmael is not the son of the promise. Matter of fact, the son of the promise would come later and his name would be Laughter. Isaac. And Isaac was the promise. And yet because of disobedience, you've now got two brothers and two women who would butt heads. And listen, that was the day of a reckoning in which God blessed Ishmael and the Arab nation. And ever since they've been fighting. And if you've been paying attention to Israel in the last several months, you know that they have been butting heads not just for months or for years, but for centuries, for thousands of years. And it all began because of one man's disobedience. And listen, that disobedience, just, it just spiraled downhill. Isaac, too, was a man who did the same thing that his father did, lied about his wife. She's my sister, not my wife. 
You see, he was also a man who was deceived by Jacob and his wife. There was a huge encounter over a bowl of porridge. Jacob and Esau. One favored Esau, one favored Jacob. Jacob, the younger, eventually succeeds the older. God promised it would happen, but you see it was through a line of deception. What's interesting, it doesn't stop there, does it? Like it just continues downhill. And listen, when we read our Bible, we can become disheartened. Like all this mess, like God's in the middle of this mess. And here's what you need to know. Lean in with me. God's in the middle of our mess. And even greatest king in all of Israel, the one who's revered and esteemed more than any other, King David was a murderer, an adulterer. And he wasn't alone. That was Moses' story too. Moses was certainly a murderer. Man, a man in, who flees to Midian called by God, hey, go set my people free. Well, I, I mean, no, I, 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 I can't, I mean, I'm, I just uh, stutter, not eloquent in speech. God said, no, you're the guy. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Who are you to tell me that I'm like, God's about to burn him up in his anger. He uses this broken man, a murderer, a man who fleed. You see, that's the picture of our entire Bible. You know why it's a picture of our entire Bible? It's because that's the type of people that Jesus not only came for, it's the type of people that he wants to use. And when I look around our church, like what you need to know is I see our church as a gift from God. Such an eclectic group of people. There's people in this room that you don't have an education, but you are a white-collar worker. You get up every day and you do manual labor and tasks that are often not celebrated, oftentimes not recognized in our culture, certainly not paid for in our culture the way that it should be. And in some ways you feel like, man, there should be more for me. Maybe I'm doing less than I'm called to do. And I'm telling you, listen, that's exactly where God has you, to labor among laborers. Because you are like a Peter and you are like an Andrew, and you are like a Bartholomew, and you are like a Simon. You are exactly where God wants you to be, and that's who we are. You go, well, we're just a bunch of rednecks from East Texas. Can we really make a difference? And I would say, yes, absolutely. Because let me explain to you real quickly what a disciple is. Can I just put it for you up on the screen one more time? Here's what a disciple is. And I amended it just a little bit, and this is what we'll use moving forward. Here's what it is. A disciple is a learner, an apprentice, and someone who believes the ideas and the principles of their master and tries to live the way that person did. Over the next handful of weeks, we're going to learn from the disciples. But let me just be very clear with you. They are merely students. They themselves were apprentices. And we don't, we don't take everything that we see from them and do. And the reason why is because in the classroom, we oftentimes learn from other students, don't we? But in this classroom, we're gonna keep our eyes on the master. And his name is Jesus. But just as he called them to some things, I believe this is what he's calling us as learners and apprentices to. And so let me just end with this real quickly. And here's the number one that you should know discipleship and being a disciple is a progression. The disciples didn't just one day arrive. It started with a relationship. It started with many days and weeks and years of following the master closely.
There's so many of us in this room that were like, I don't know the Bible. I feel unintelligent. I feel like I don't belong in spiritual conversations. But listen, you got to start somewhere. And my question to you would be just as we enter 2024, like what's your next step? What's your next step? Maybe it's like, you're, I'm going to commit to read God's word every day. What a great step. For some of you, it's like, you know what? I have something against organized religion. I have something against people who would tell me what to do. So did Jesus. And I just want you to understand While I do believe that the New Testament church has a high value on being a part of the body of Christ and membership is a part of that, I want you to understand that what we are calling people to is not what the religious leaders of the day were calling them to. We are not desiring you to be called to legalism. We are calling one another to obedience. Friends, there is a huge difference. Can I explain it to you real quickly? Legalism is when your leaders ask you to do something that they will not do. And there are churches all across our nation that leaders are not doing what they're calling other people to do. Abandon those churches. But don't mistake obedience and legalism because obedience is following trusted men and their counsel to be all that God has for you to be as you're a disciple. Saying yes to the important things and no to the less important. It is following Christ fully, even when it makes you uncomfortable. It's following into hard places. That's who these men were. It's pressing against the odds. It's pressing against the culture. Listen, I'll just tell you, it's pressing against my own fleshly desires. It is being exactly what Jesus wants us to be, and that is followers, and which what we do is we deny ourselves and we take up the cross and we follow him. It seems to be that Paul said it a different way in Galatians 2, that we crucify the old. I have been crucified with Christ. It is I that no longer lives. That's what he says. Friends, what's your next step? Is it baptism? Is it membership? Is it a commitment to community, even though that scares you to death or because even it's inconvenient for you? It doesn't fit in your current schedule. Are you gonna follow your leaders? Are you gonna trust them? Are you gonna be obedient to the master? That's the key, that's the key. That's the question. You gotta answer that for yourself. The disciples grow in progression. The second thing is the disciples share the good news. We saw clearly that they were called not just to leave their boats and their nets to become fisher of men, but they became fishers of men by preaching the gospel. It took them a while to get there, but eventually they got there. Peter heralded the gospel. Now what's incredible is, is we get to do that unique privilege as well, which is I would ask you this question, who is the last person that came to know Jesus because of you? I would reckon to believe that in this room, as large as it is, half of the room has never led a single person to Jesus Christ. And listen, Our church has definitely plateaued. I mean, we're not growing at the rates. We used to grow so fast that we couldn't add services fast enough. Here on this particular campus where we added the Edgewood campus, we had four services. It was exhausting. It was draining. Listen, can I just tell you that I would like to be inconvenienced in that way again? And can I just tell you real quickly why we're not? Look, it's not because there's not good music. 
It's not because there's not solid teaching. Listen, I don't believe that I'm a national great, but I can tell you this. We study, we proclaim the word of God in a challenge, convicting way, and we do it justice. Week in and week out. That's not the reason why. The reason we're not growing is two reasons. Here it is. Reason number one is because the people are not sharing the good news of the gospel. We don't have the boldness. We don't have the fiery nature of a true disciple. The second reason is, is that we're, all, we're okay calling legalism obedience and obedience legalism. Let me say it one more time. We're okay with confusing legalism and obedience. And as long as you're okay to settle into that journey, you will never grow as a church. So the reality is, is that we are to preach and proclaim the gospel. And the last time I checked, in the progression of Peter's life, he became a rock. He was immovable. He was unstoppable. He was the force that Jesus created him to be. And men in this room, God has no less of a desire for you than he did for Peter. We have to quit calling men women, and men have to be men. And women, you have to quit desiring that your husband is a woman and help him be a man. Men, the biggest event we'll have in Van Zandt County this year in a local church is the Finn Feather and Fur. It's less than a month away. Half of the men or more in our church do not attend it, which is a crying shame that over 250 of the men out of the 400 will be there are not affiliated with our church. It's a good thing and it's a really sad thing. You see that as a sad thing? Yes. It's time. Preach the gospel. If you can't preach them, listen, if you can't preach them, bring them to good preaching. Right? Like in my journey, I'm not ready to share the gospel. Just go to Peter like Andrew did and say, hey, man, come. I think I found the Messiah. Come and see it. I, I think this is the real deal. I mean, I, I get it. Like we, we've tasted a lot of things that aren't the real deal. We've heard a lot of promises in our day, but this is it. Peter, this is it. This is the real deal. He's the Messiah. Will you follow? Come on. When's the last time that you called somebody to follow the real Jesus? And listen, I'll just tell you that in our culture, it's convoluted. And it is certainly, certainly challenging to find the real Jesus. Listen, he lives among us. And the third thing is disciples change and promote change. Listen, for the sake of going long, listen, if there is one message to go long in, it is the very first one of the year. And this one right here is gonna sting a little bit. It's gonna frustrate you. It's gonna make you sad. And before you get your feathers ruffled, let me just say the reason that this next one is a challenge is because of me. It's because of me. It's because of my poor leadership. When we think about change and promoting change, the question is, is if we were to close our doors today, would anyone in the city of Wills Point or any of the city of Will, in Edgewood, would they miss us? If not, we should close our doors today. When we first started, Man, we were an integral part of our community. And I think we still bless our community. Certainly our school district gets Sonic drinks from us twice a year. <laughs> but listen, 
surely, friends, we can do more than sonic drinks. But just to be honest with you, we've been content with going, man, we're just going to do sonic drinks. Isn't that a good thing? And it's not enough. I was recently asked to donate some, some stuff to one of our local school districts to help promote some things. And listen, just to be frank with you, we're so running tight on our budget that we had nothing to give them. And that's a crying shame. It is a crying shame that we, that we didn't have something built in in a greater way because we're running so day to day because of a lack of general generosity. Like we have to get more sacrificial. Listen, it's gonna cost us this year if we're gonna do the things that God's calling us to do. It's gonna cost me and it's gonna cost you. And it's not just gonna cost you financially because maybe you're like, oh, so what am I gonna have to owe? Like, I thought you said you weren't gonna call us. And I'm like, look, remember, obedience is I'm gonna give money sacrificially above and beyond what I already give and I'm gonna call you to do the same. I'm also going to build in time to have people who don't go to church over to my house for dinner. I'm also gonna build in time to serve our community. Like, what were your thoughts? I just want you to keep them in your head for just a second, just a thought bubble. But if I were to tell you I'm running for school board this year, what are your thoughts? Okay, now look, there's half the room is gonna say, yes, go for it. And the other half of the room is gonna say, Brandon, you're, you're calling us higher than that. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to understand that there is a huge dilemma in the local church as to what the local church is supposed to be. Some say, well, the pastor and the leader of the church should not be in politics or in other sectors. And the reason why is because of good natural reasons. We would see government as corrupt. And we see it in every form. And we, it can start locally and it can move abroad. Y'all see government is corrupt at times? Yes. And so we think, well, look, if you're a pastor and a leader, like, dude, stay out of that. In some ways, what we want our leaders to be are monks. We want them to live in a monasterial lifestyle. We only want them to come out of their chambers when we have a problem. We hope they live a holy life, but the problem is, is the monk can't live a holy life because even though he's moved himself from the world, he can't move himself from his head or heart. See the problem with the monk? And that's how we've separated these chambers. But here's the deal. Let me ask you a question. If you believe that our nation is to be God-fearing and our nation should be built around prayer, and about the motto, in God we trust, then the question is, is how do you get there? I would say either you got to change the world from the inside out or from the top down. And to me, you go, choose your path. And for me, I would say, choose both paths. If you want something to change in your city, Orchestrate the change. Don't like the direction things are going? Lead from the top down. Last time I checked, if you're a follower of God, you would desire more love, more joy. I asked you this, right? More peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, 
more gentleness, more faithfulness? Would y'all desire more self-control? Where does it start? It starts when his followers embark on a journey of change. It's when you and I stop venerating the apostles and pastors and we start living as if we are pastors and ministers and leaders. And it starts here. And it starts today. And it starts with you and me. Now, you might have heard, Brandon's running from school board. Like, don't put that out on social media because that is not something I'm committing to. But what I am telling you is this, is that I'm willing to pray about those roles. I'm willing to, to, to embark on those type of circles because I believe that if our city and our schools and our nation and our local governments have challenges, then why not infuse those challenges with people of hope? That was the master's plan. The world was turned upside down because a ragtag bunch of people got together over a common mission and said, we've had enough. There's a new sheriff in town and things are gonna change. Listen, in this case, there's not a new sheriff in town because Jesus is and always will be supreme in our church. But we can follow him more closely and we can be more life changers than we have been in recent years. And I pray that we will be. It starts with you and your progression and your walk with the Lord. It moves to you proclaiming, preaching the good news so that the world is changed by God's grace through and in us, his disciples. Hey, church, that's the macro view. Next week, we're going to start a micro view. We're going to walk through some of these men's lives and what we know about them. And if you felt challenged today, from here until Easter is going to be a challenge every single week as we explore the gospel together and the way the good news shapes our lives. Thanks for being here. Would you make a commitment now to be a part in a very bold and strong way this year? Would you commit now to asking God, Lord, what do you want to do in me that I've been resisting? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that that this news goes forth and I pray, Lord, that that as a messenger, Lord, that, you've, just, that you've, you've been pleased with my obedience. It's not an easy message. While sometimes inspiring, Lord, when we face the mirror at the end of the message, it's really difficult to see the things you wanna do in us. Lord, may we not be hearers of the word and so deceive ourselves. God, would you help us to do what your word says? And if we don't know what your word says, I pray that you would help us to go on a journey to explore it. I pray that we wouldn't continue to, to take man's opinions or even our bad experiences as the end all be all. Lord, may you just help us to be your students, your learners. And may we impact the world one life at a time as we share the good news of how you've changed our lives. It's really simple, although we make it really confounding and confusing. Lord, we need your help and your spirit's leadership. We thank you for the grace to go a little longer today. And we pray, Lord, that you use it for your purposes, for the glory of God and the world and for the good of those who've heard it and who need to hear it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.